People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, 101 High FM, and we have in the studio uh, a very, very famous South African. We have Jonathan Shapiro, known to everybody as Shapiro. He is launching his new book, which is a compilation of it's 156 political cartoons from the last year. It's Hasta La Gupta Baby, and it is in the shops at the moment. Welcome, Zapiro. Thank you. Thank you for having me with you. To let everyone know, Zapiro was born in 1958. He went through architecture at UCT, conscription, activism, detention, and a Fulbright scholarship to New York before establishing himself as South Africa's best-known cartoonist. He's been the editorial cartoonist for the Sunday Times since 1998, the Daily Maverick starting in 2017, Previously, he was the editorial cartoonist for the Mail and Guardian and for the Times. He was also editorial cartoonist for the Sweaten and the Independent Newspapers. He has published 21 best-selling annuals, as well as the Mandela Files, Vuvuzela Nation, and Democrazy, which was his cartoon collection on South Africa's 20-year trip. Welcome to the studio. It's wonderful having you here with us, and uh, good luck with the book. Oh, thank you so much. And, and as you said, 21 uh, previous albums, and this one is actually the 22nd. I can hardly believe it. Uh, the first one I did is in 1996. I had a wonderful quote from Adibo on the back, and always try and encapsulate the year in in the books. There's something about the the, the look of and 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 uh, the title that that sort of talks about the, the the past year and the era that we're living through. How do you come up with your cartoons? What's the process? What's your inspiration? I've, I am pretty conceptual in the way that I, I do that. I'm, I'm, I'm not looking for a joke. I'm not looking for a drawing at the stage that, I, that I'm thinking about it. I'm looking for something to say. And, and that means that I'm actually writing down in a, in a very sort of uh, a real kind of scrapbook. I basically pull together about 120 or 150 pages and bind them um, of, of ordinary photostat paper. So it's not, I don't feel prissy and I don't have any problems or self-consciousness about drawing and wasting paper in that book. I just think. And I write down what I'm interested in. I write down my attitudes towards those things. I start linking them sometimes just with arrows. It's all words at this stage. And then some of them start to link together and I start to think, well, maybe I could say something about both things in if I do a sort of a sitcom that will be a word play with, with ordinary uh, scale people, or it could be a conceptual thing that then I start to think, how could I say it? Could I say it conceptually? Like let's say a person is a bomb or a, or that's a conceptual thing where a, a sitcom is like you and me sitting together, proper scale and everything else done to proper scale. And it's in the, the humor or the joke or the, 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 the observation comes through something that we say, the situation comedy. People understand that. Or it could be a parody. I could be doing a parody of a famous play or a famous book or an advert, a TV advert. Maybe that will communicate the best thing. If, if I need it to be very wordy, maybe it's going to be comic strip style. That's how I come up with the stuff, yeah. I want to ask you, you need to be very well informed to comment on Everything, because you really you comment on everything, not just local but international as well. What news outlets do you follow? 
Uh, a lot. I mean, when I get up in the morning, I'm often listening. Interestingly, there's one good SAFM pro. There's a really good program on, on an SABC, the SAFM morning, morning live, Sakina Kamwenda. I often listen to her. Uh, being based down in Cape Town, I need something that's national. That's good to hear. Um, and then I, I shift between, I, I listen to Cape Talk as well down there and, and Cape Talk uh, links up with 702. We don't get, um, I, I don't listen to a lot of really very totally locally based things. You know, small, I listen to mostly the, the, the things that are na- concerned with national issues. Well, Cape Talk is a little parochial. Um, but 702 is, a, is more national. And then I, I, I trawl through the, the internet, particularly Daily Maverick, which is where I'm based. But I also go to other things in New York Times and, I, and, and all sorts of uh, local and international sites. I read a lot of actual physical newspapers still. I, I like newspapers. I like being able to put down three or four papers and see that they've covered the same issue differently. And that starts me thinking about what the agendas are and what 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 people are so i need to get a real spread i also have a, a network of old comrades and and uh, you know from the political days and also uh, people in media who I, I often speak with and and sometimes i have breakfast with some of the people i'm working with and we we, we come up with crazy things that may turn into a cartoon there's been a lot of criticism leveled against you how do you deal with public scorn yeah, public scorn. I mean, um, scorn. It's an interesting one. Um, the criticism. I, you know, scorn is is not a, maybe uh, the criticism. Absolutely, scorn. I don't always feel scorn. I feel um, you know public outrage or uh, public public disagreement. You know, there's the, the 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 word scorn sort of somehow feels as if I'm going to shrivel up. Yeah, and it's and I don't. Um, um, mostly, I feel like I've taken a lot of care to think about where where I'm situating myself, what I'm trying to do, um, and I, I I feel I can usually back things up. Um, I'm, I also have my sort of network within the media who I've. I'm, I'm thinking through things with, if uh, thinking things through with, if 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 I am facing that sort of thing. On the other hand, there every now and then there are one or two issues that really, really. I'm, I'm, about a year and a half ago, I had a really hard time with some of the criticism. It's not for any of the rape of justice cartoons. Those are there's a series of those. I'm absolutely able to stand by those 100. percent But if you're doing something for a quarter of a century. It's not as if you're infallible. I mean, I can try my best to to keep a progressive attitude, not to be reactionary, not to 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 slide into camps in a certain way. But there may be something that I put out, especially in the era of social media, where it's interpreted by some groups of people in a different way from the way that I anticipated, and that can be pretty scary because in this era of social media people's careers get destroyed in a week or even a couple of days. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel lucky that I've been able to come through those really difficult periods and still keep on having a, a, a wide readership and uh, still, you know, be asked onto many speaking platforms, all sorts of things. Do you take the, the, the response to your cartoons as a indication of how, how, how close they are to hitting the target? Uh, yes and no. Um, I, I, I don't want to, for example, say that the, the number of, 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 of views that a cartoon has 
always means it was a great cartoon. You know, you could do something that is a little snide remark about um, Mugabe, and because people are really angry about Mugabe, um, you can actually attract a whole lot of viewers who are not the viewers that you even want. They may be quite racist or they may, you know. So sometimes it's a cartoon that I think is saying something very hard-hitting and is a good cartoon, gets a huge number of views, and I know that that some of the right-wingers are starting to put it on their their platforms and stuff like that. So it's a real problem. Um, at the same time, I just want to say that one cartoon that I did, which got an enormous amount of number of views, I will stand by 100%. I did a cartoon about Praveen Gordhan, um, where, where he was about, we thought he was about to be arrested by the Hawks. And I have Burning and Clemenza looking sort of very clumsy, like a sort of almost Stalinist buffoonish character. And he's roughed up Praveen Gordhan, and, 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 and he's saying, he's saying to Zuma, we, about Praveen Gordon, we caught him red-handed trying to run the country properly. And Zuma is on the other side taking things out of a safe and putting you know, for his family and his cronies and whatever. That cartoon got two and a quarter million views, which is a massive record for me. The previous best were 500,000, 600,000. So it is an indication of, of tremendous interest. And in that instance, I, as I say, I completely stand by the cartoon. We're speaking to Zapiro on the launch of his new book, Hasta la Gupta Baby, and it's available in the shops right now. We, 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 we're going to get to the cartoon of the year, the rape cartoon, which one of the rape cartoons is in the book. Uh, it's, it, 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 it surely has its own new story in its own right. Um, you can tell us the full story. Can you tell us the full story behind it? And I, I personally feel after reading Jacques Poe's book that your cartoon Lee lets the, zo- the Zuma and the Guptas off pretty lightly. <laughs> well, of course, that would be disputed by some people because the, 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 the power of the rape metaphor is, is so, it, it, it's intense and it's not something you use lightly. And, um, it's still a shocking image, even used. It's the, it's, the, I've, I've used it a few times. And this is this is another version of it. The original, of course, was Lady Justice looking as if she's about to be raped by Jacob Zuma, who's unzipping his fly. This was 2008, and he was before he was president. And holding Lady Justice down were four male figures. Uh, you know, it was the, the the it was then the ANC Youth League, Judas Malema. It was uh, Guido Mantashe as uh, as ANC. It was uh, Bladen Zamande as SACP, and it was Valenzi Mavavi as the um, as Kasatu. Now, of course, that whole alliance behind Zuma is fractured. Uh, Malema's off the EFF. Um, Vavi's off in Saftu. He's you know, out of Kasatu. Bladen Zamande chucked out of the out of the cabinet, and the Communist Party is not supporting Zuma anymore. Kwede Mantashe is always vacillating one way or the other, and the support for Zuma has waned enormously, but he's still there with his power structure. The point that I wanted to make now is that in the era of state capture, the important thing was to somehow do a cartoon that would show that same thing that Zuma did before he became president to the justice system, and even when he was president, it's actually become the whole country now. So Lady South Africa in, a, in the full flag and Zuma has sort of done the deed, really. He's walking away and saying to Atul Gupta, um, it's, he, uh, she's all yours, boss, which is the same thing that was being said in the first cartoon. And there are different people, sort of Zuma Gupta supporters, holding her down. 
And that, uh, including ANN7 and New Age, their, their sort of media, but also the security people, David Machlobo, and even a woman holding her down by Tabili Dlamini, which is quite subversive to have a woman holding another woman down in a what looked like a gang rape scene. So it's a it's a very subversive image, and I did get a lot of criticism again, but I also got huge support, and and I think people are feeling as you felt that it is it does reflect state capture. It reflects this this looting of the cabal that Zuma surrounded himself with, and the giving out of aspects of government and what government should be about, what the presidency should be, should be about to corrupt people from other places who have a, a hand that they shouldn't have in, in our country. It is, it's a very, very terrible situation. You captured perfectly in one cartoon. 156 cartoons in one volume raises a lot of smiles and smirks, but it's actually a daunting and it can be at times a depressive read. It is a biting commentary on a very selfish, corrupt and destructive group of leaders that our country has. How do you get up every morning to face the same group of criminals pillaging our beloved country? You know, if you think back to the 80s and uh, when I started doing political cartoons, I started doing cartoons really intensely in 1983. So I had that period from 1983 through much of 1988. So that's many years of feeling like we would never, ever break that apartheid system. I wasn't doing daily editorial cartoons, but eventually I did have a, a gig at South Newspaper in Cape Town where I was doing two cartoons a week. So I was doing P.W. Boerta and I was doing Stoffel Boerta, his henchman, and all the, 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 the various, the, the Louis Lachrangi, the police. And, the, and again, you, you, it was a situation where you had to keep on finding new ways, new interesting things that would keep people's interest. Otherwise, you know, people say, well, it's hopeless. They're still there. They're the powerful ones. I think as long as you keep thinking and keep working with with uh, progressive people outside of the cartooning, you know, in, in organisations as they are, as they were then, and as they are now, and you you keep you know on your toes, keep thinking of new, either funny or outrageous or just cerebral things to say. Um, you know, people may stay interested, and hopefully they have. <laughs> we'll be back with. Sapiro uh, for more about his uh, his his cartoonist editorial job and his position as uh, a mirror to South Africa straight after this ad break. People of the book on one hundred one point nine High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are privileged to have Zapiro in the studio for the launch of his book Hasta Lugupta Baby. It's available in shops at the moment. I want to ask you another question. On, on the people that you draw so intensely in your cartoons, you might not ever have met them, but do you feel like you have a relationship with Zuma and, you know, the showerhead and, you know, Trump's now become uh, 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 a, a real presence in your cartoon, in your cartoons. Do you, do you, do you create, do you have in your mind a, a, a relationship and and a feeling of I don't know closeness, but some bond to these to these characters. You know that is such an interesting question, and and it's not a question that I don't think I've done 
Many, many interviews. I know, no one's ever phrased it like that. I really like that question. It's, I, in, in a way, I do. Because what's happening is that you're almost creating a parallel universe. So if, if you, did, I don't know if you ever remember the uh, Superman comics from early days. There was a, there was a parallel universe called Bizarro, the Bizarro world, where everything was kind of cubed and, and not quite rounded and, and they, they, it was quite rough and, and, and odd. And there's, so there's Superman here and then there's Bizarro Superman there and there's Supergirl and there's Bizarro Supergirl. And, and in a, in a sense, the cartoons are, they sometimes take on a persona of their own. And I have that relationship with the cartoon and occasionally I've met the person. So there's a, there's a weird relationship. I mean, let's say I'm, I knew Trevor Manuel very well and I'm doing cartoons about him and he's got a different look in the cartoons. He's, you sort of grow into your cartoon. Trevor Manuel and Carter Asmal both used to complain to me that I drew their noses too big, which is also very ironic, you know, being I'm Jewish, I've got a pretty big nose, big schnoz myself, and there I'm drawing these two people from different ethnic backgrounds, also with big noses. And it's, it's a, so you, I had an actual relationship with a real person, but then there's another thing in their cartoon persona becomes something else. And Jacob Zuma certainly, with that shower and with the sort of, as I started to pull his eyes further apart, which is almost it looks a bit shifty, and then I found that thing with the double bump. I think Dr. Jack simultaneously did the double bump. We did that together. But now with my shower, he, he is a – my Zuma is probably different from anyone else's Zuma, and it's – and he lives in that parallel universe, and I have a – yes, I do have a relationship. By the way, I just met uh, Julius Malema, Juju, at uh, the Daily Maverick Gathering. And I had one of the figurines. I've actually got them here. I should show them to you. But they, they, I, I went up to him as he came off stage. He doesn't know what I look like. I've never, he's one of the few, one of the politicians I haven't met. And I sort of accosted him and he said hello. I said, I'm Zapira the cartoonist. Oh, that's it's you. And he, he was actually quite personable. And then I showed him this figurine and he, he was, he laughed his head off. But then he said, you've got to do a new one because it's too fat. So, you know, there's almost a sort of a vanity that, the, that you don't expect. They're kind of political figures, but they, they, they're also just ordinary people. And it was, a, it was actually quite a fascinating encounter. How do you view yourself as a, as a South African? This is Chai FM, so I'm going to ask as a Jew and also as an international citizen because you do have an international voice. I, you know, in terms of my identity, I, I am I'm, – I'm very much. Um, I have a strong identity as a, as as Jewish by virtue of my background, my family, and uh, ties into the Jewish community and all of that. But but I'm not. I'm in terms of the religion. I'm you know not. I'm not observant at all. So my my primary identity is as a South African. Uh, but I, I certainly can't get away from. Nor am I trying to get away from the fact that I'm also a Jew. And um, there are many people like me around the world who are who there's a certain element of humanism, there's a certain element of a certain kind of intellectualism, and 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 hopefully among some of us, um, an element that 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 is, has a great concern for justice. The problem is I do feel a little dissonance in my Jewish background with the fact that that that, that you know there, there's a an enormous. Um, um, sort of pressure on Jews to be strongly Zionist, which I'm not. I, I, I'm a global citizen and I see struggles that happen in different parts of the world and where people are looking for, 
for for justice where people are occupied where people are under threat where people are i see those i see some strong ties the ties between them not that they're not all the same struggles they're all different struggles so as with many people i have that those kind of sort of ruptures and dissonances with my identity it's they put it's pulled it's pulled in their tensions but i'm i'm most certainly a, you know, a south african a global citizen and and a jew who's sometimes at odds with some other people in in, in the jewish community also sometimes very much in concert with other people in the Jewish community. That's, uh, that's a, it's a very nuanced answer, but I hope it, it sort of says oh, what we I We like feel. nuance here. This is a book show. <laughs> this is a book show. Yeah. You make very sharp comments on international events as well as local ones. Can you talk about your views on Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, Angela Merkel, Theresa, Theresa May, or I don't know, any other politicians that you are commentating about on um, from an international perspective? Well, I mean, Donald Trump is one of those people who, if we thought that George W. Bush was a caricature and, and was a, um, somebody who represented some of the worst of America, uh, you know, none of us was prepared for Donald Trump. The kind of um, cartoons that I did in the run-up to the Trump presidency were really kind of canary in the coal mine cartoons where I'm I'm showing Trump as president but not for one second actually believing it would happen. So I mean a year before no, it's more like it's more like twenty months before Trump became president. I did I had a cartoon of South Africans feeling down about themselves and they're watching T V and then they suddenly get a great laugh and they imagine they see President Trump of America, you know, we're not the only ones who, they're even worse. That was about 20 months before he became president, not that I thought he would be. And then about a year before, I had him coming as a sort of, that one of the cartoons that is in this book, he's a sort of creature that comes up, uh, the nightmare on, on Pennsylvania Avenue. He comes up through the white as a sort of giant worm thing. And so I despise the man. I grew, I, I grew up, I, I lived in New York for two and a half years at the end of the 80s. Um, and I was studying, uh, I won this Fulbright scholarship in a fantastic period. Um, and I got to know Trump uh, and, and what he was all about long before most South Africans did. So I, I, I despised everything that he stood for and could not believe. Uh, there, somebody like Angela Merkel, isn't it amazing that in Europe, after the atrocities of the Second World War and after the Holocaust, that moral guidance in Europe, the sort of leader of the free world, comes from Germany, no less than Germany. Somebody from East Germany, Angela Merkel, who's been a humanist, who's, who's had a, a really strong uh, approach to trying to find solutions to immigration and whatever, and who's, who's had a very, he's a very sane person. Weird irony to, to imagine that after the atrocities there. So that, you know, I have an interesting take. On, I mean, if you, to me, it feels fascinating that she's so interesting in that way. It's Theresa May, uh, I think she's weak, and I think, uh, it, I think the British are absolutely crazy to, to the split off from, from, from Europe. Um, the Brexit, uh, yeah, they, uh, you know, do develop attitudes to all, towards all of them. And the Russians? Oh, Putin! I haven't said. Oh, Putin is Putin is the evil empire. I mean, Putin, yeah, he's he's um, you know he's got a hand in so much of what of the bad stuff that's happening everywhere, including here in South Africa. Uh, the, the the nuclear deal that David Machlobo has been put in position for, Zuma's corrupt cabal that is linked in with the Russians, uh, also 
that's linked in with the Chinese in a, in a slightly in a different way. The Chinese will sort of, in a way, get wherever they can get in Africa. But uh, but Putin is really bad news, and he's he's taking almost the worst of the sort of Stalinist control mechanisms with the most the worst excesses of, of capitalism and becoming an oligarch uh, along with other oligarchs and also there's huge numbers of journalists being killed in 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 russia compared to any other m- major country uh, in in the world it's uh, you know major supposed democracy it's a uh, it's a you know he's a he's a terrifying personality i often joke that Good newspapers have a contract with the angel of death, and they just happen to knock off interesting people every week. So there's always an interesting obituary. I don't know who you have a contract with as a as a political cartoonist, but somehow the world just keeps throwing up these larger-than-life politicians who are Absolute caricatures. It's the beyond belief. Yes, if anyone had write a novel, yeah. no one would invent a Donald Trump or a or a Putin. Yes, but exactly. Ca- you, a- le- you you hand these uh, these people to comment on on a daily basis. Well, one of the things I find slightly more difficult than people might imagine is that when you get people who are so over the top, and when you get situations that are so surreal as that, then. It, it's it's not as easy as you'd think to do something with them in cartoons because if you simply say what is happening, you're not layering it with your own opinion or with a twist or with something else. So you've got to be almost a jump ahead, and that's one of the biggest difficulties that I have as a cartoonist. To be the, to, to be one jump ahead, but so yeah. far over twenty one annuals <laughs> and a, a quarter of a century, you you, you still are one you you one jump ahead. We're speaking to Zapiro uh, in studio and people in the book, and his new book Hasta la Gupta Baby is available in the shops. We're discussing the book and politics and the world of editorial journalism in because the book is being released right now. What are your thoughts about South Africa's future? One thing I'm not, as I've been, I mean, people are asking me things, a, a lot of things like that at, at the moment, of course. And they, and, they, and remember, this is, people ask me stuff like that about Polokwane and, uh, you know, when, when Zuma was coming in and et cetera, et cetera. I'm not a crystal ball gazer. I'm, in, I'm more involved in what is happening now and whether I can make any difference along with other people of like-minded or people fighting against things, people exposing things, people exposing the hypocrisy. I, I'm, I'm not necessarily up for major predictions because, first of all, you, you, you're probably going to be wrong one, one way or the other. But it's not just that. It's like I don't really see the importance for me in, 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 the, the, in, in making major predictions. Occasionally in the cartoons, I'll make a, a real hyperbolic an exaggerated prediction or a hypothetical prediction of what will happen if we keep going this way that's sort of what science fiction is like it's like science fiction is just fiction using something set in the future which you suddenly realize the world has come to a cataclysmic thing because they everything blew up in a nuclear holocaust or whatever and they're saying well don't go that route and, uh, you know, these human dynamics are still in play there. And that's, I suppose, I'm more involved in the human dynamic now. I'm less, I, I do say that uh, if you, if you think about the next few months, I really don't have faith in the ANC, um, candidates that they've put up. Uh, I, 
obviously much prefer Cyril Ramaphosa to Nkosazana uh, Dlamini Zuma, and I don't think the others have much of a look in. Uh, but that said, I, don't, I think really the ANC is a, a morally a spent force. It really, unfortunately, there are great people in the ANC still, people like Pravin Godan, but they're a spent force. And, and, and I think that the, the fracturing is what is going to be interesting. I think it's interesting that Makosi Koza is forming a new party. I'd love to see a coalescing around not only her party, but other things outside of that. So that's what I'd like to see. But I'm not saying that I'm not making a grand prediction. Do you ever see a direct result in current affairs from your cartoons? You know, I see little bits of, 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 of effects, but Cause and effect directly from one cartoon, very hard to say. Uh, I will say, for example, that, um, um, that the, the Rape of Justice, the original Rape of Justice cartoon, firstly, what was fascinating is every single person in that cartoon, uh, everyone, every one of those males that I represented, actually appeared to react in some way to the cartoon on public platforms. So that definitely had some impact. The only person who didn't react was the metaphorical Lady Justice. Uh, and, of course, Lady Justice metaphorically, um, you know, did get raped. Azuma was, in fact, those charges were dropped uh, for the period in which he could become president. And maybe or maybe maybe they'll, they'll come back. Maybe they won't. Also, that cartoon got put into it, something called uh, by Victor Navasky in the United States. He has a, a list of 20 cartoons that changed the world. And in his view... These are cartoons that had a major impact on their society in the time in which they were drawn over the last 200 years. And that cartoon is in, in at number 15. So there's that. But there are occasionally cartoons which actually can you can see cause and effect. When, when Kulikani Setole, the prisons commissioner back then, uh, in 1997, I think, wanted to build prisons down disused mine shafts. I drew a disused mine shaft and I drew his head as a disused brain cavity. And it apparently was so embarrassing for him that, that he could never show that idea again. So whether or not the, the idea would ever have taken, had taken root, so to speak, but I don't know. I don't think so. But at least the cartoon was part of what sank it, so to speak. And, they, and, they, and every now and then I see that cause and effect, and that's fantastic. This is People of the Book, and we are talking to Zapiro, one of South Africa's great political cartoonists. His book, Hasta La Gupta Baby, is the, his annual for the last year. The cartoons from the Daily Maverick, the Sunday Times, the Mail and Guardian, and the Times. And we are going to just ask a last, a, 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 a last few, a few last questions. Um, it's been a very big year, especially for Proven Gordon and the whole country as well. But Proven Gordon comes across as one of your very few heroes. Even Helen Zilla gets a, a Zapiro roasting. <laughs> how, how would you fashion a Dream League government for South Africa? You know, I think it would have to have people like Pravin Gordon. It would, I would love to see Tuli Maroncella in it. I would love to see Makosi Koza and Mavuso Msamang if he, well, he maybe is, uh, uh, on the edge of, you know, he's, he's, he may, I don't know if he'd come back. Khalema Motlante, I'd love to see, I'd like to see the, the progressive, some of the progressive people within the DA, um, on, you know, on the, the, the left of the DA. Uh, I'd like to see the, the, the EFF is, I mean, I always love listening to, uh, Dlozi of the EFF, very sharp guy. Some of the EFF people, I mean, Malema, I think 
you know, I'm not sure where how he'd fit in, but you know, there. Uh, yeah, but uh, Lozzi is very interesting. Uh, you know, I do think civil society. There are people in civil society. Let's say it's a dream government. I mean, people who've done so much within all those organisations, Zaki Ahmad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, there are even people who might shift from media, and there, there, there's some incredible personalities and characters and 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 principle-driven people in this country, and I think that's what actually keeps us from completely falling apart. Uh, I, I would, whatever it is, I'd just like to see, even if they don't go into government, at least if they coalesce in a movement that actually starts to really have an impact on what on the bad stuff that is happening now, that's sort of what I would like, love to see. That's quite an inspiring vision. <laughs> I think we'll stop there because it's the finishing of the interview on quite a positive note. Great. Thank you for your time. and. Continue holding that mirror up To government and to South African society You're doing a very important job for us We thank you for all your For all your all your editorials uh, Even the ones that Make us laugh and cry simultaneously And good luck with your book And we look forward to all your all your Cartoons coming out in all the different Platforms over the next uh, Let's hope another quarter of a century Thank you Stephen People of the book on 101.9 High FM this is People of the Book. That was an interview that we played. We recorded it with Zapiro earlier this week. The book was launched on Monday. It is available in the shops. It's 156 political cartoons starting from late last year um, during the month of October and going all the way through. The first cartoon is from the 19th of October 2016, and the last cartoon in the book is plucked from uh, the headlines, the 21st of September 2017. There's a lot of state capture. There's a lot of Proven Gordon. There's a lot of Zuma with the showerhead. There's a sprinkling of Trump. And the book's called Hasta la Gupta Baby. It's available in the shops at the moment. It's published by Jakarta. And it's a, it's, it's, it's an intense read because you page through. It'll take you, won't take that long to page through and to read every single cartoon. But your emotions are going through a total roller coaster. You laughing, but at the same time you're crying inside. And Zapiro, quite a controversial figure in South Africa and in our Jewish community but uh, a voice that is heard through his editorial cartoons all the way to the highest levels of South African polit politics and society. Now for other books for the, for the book show today. I'm going to start off with a giveaway. The book is called The Reputation Game, and it's written by David Waller and Rupert, Rupert Younger. It's published by One World, and it's... A business book, and it's about reputations. Just a note on the authors. David Waller was a journalist with the Financial Times for the best part of 10 years working in Frankfurt and on the International Lex column that's published in the Financial Times. More recently, he's a partner in a global consulting firm and has been an advisor to companies and governments on reputational issues. He's also written four books on business and historical subjects. His co-author, Rupert Younger, is founder director of the University of Oxford's Center for Corporate Rela Reputation, a leading academic center undertaking research and teaching into how corporations and institutions create, sustain, destroy, and rebuild reputation. 
Rupert Young is a member of the Senior Common Room at Worcester College, Oxford, and at St. Anthony's College in Oxford, and he's a co-founder of Finsbury, the global communications consultancy, which is headquartered in London. And uh, this book, I'm just going to read from the introduction just to give you a sense of what the reputation game is about. This book's central argument is that reputation is more valuable than money. We seek to define reputation, arguing that it is different from marketing, PR, branding, status, or image. We set out why such distinctions matter. We show how personal, corporate, institutional, and national reputations matter, and we go on to explain the key elements of reputation engagement, how reputations are created, sustained, destroyed, and rebuilt how leaders in business, the military, and politics use reputation to achieve their goals, how celebrities and criminals build and exploit their reputations for their own advantage, and how our reputations proceed and follow us online and in other social networks. What other people say about us dramatically affects our ability to achieve what we want, even if what they say is gossip. Our personal reputations are vital to our self-esteem and can make us feel happy, fulfilled, and appreciated. A good reputation helps us to find a soulmate, sell a table on eBay, rent out a room on Airbnb, get invited to parties, or secure a new promotion. By monitoring what we say and do online and what others say and think about us, huge corporations are also able to build up a picture of our shopping habits, preferences, behavioral quirks, in ways that are only now becoming apparent. When you ask people if they live in a networked age, most people would say yes. LinkedIn co-founder and Silicon Valley titan Reid Hoffman told us. But the vast majority of people have not internalized this at all and understood that everything becomes a reputational issue. It is a major component to everything, relationships, decision-making, and so on. But most people don't actually pass this out. This is The Reputation Game, written by David Waller and Rupert Younger, published by One World. And to win yourself a copy, all you have to do is WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019 or SMS us on 34519 with your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading. And you can win this book. It's a business book, The Reputation Game, The Art of Changing How People See You. We'll be back with a few more reviews and giveaways after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. If you want to win a copy of The Reputation Game, The Art of Changing How People See You, written by two world experts in reputation creation, management, and resurrection, WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019 or SMS us on 34519. Tell us your name and the title of the book that you are reading, and our office will get through to you uh, telling you if you've won. The next book I'm going to look at, this was a huge release in October. I think there's still fortunes of copies left in the bookshops. It's Dan Brown's new book, Origin. And uh, everybody, in everyone who's a critic almost looks down their nose at Dan Brown because he's going to sell in truckloads. And uh, the, the general feeling is that it's very commercial fiction. But I really did enjoy the book. Dan Brown 
for once got beyond his conspiracies uh, and he's looking at a real issue in the world today. Instead of conspiracies, there's no Illuminati or secret Catholic organizations that are trying to control the world or being set up to control the world. He's really looking at artificial intelligence and the sweep of science and the clash between science and religion. The book is set in Spain and unique for a Dan Brown book. The action happens all within one country. There are no late night secret flights taking off from one military base to another in order to avert an absolute catastrophe. The All the action takes place within Spain, especially Barcelona and in the Basque country in Bilbao. Uh, that's where it all starts and Madrid as well. So we have almost an advert, an, ad, an advert for Spanish tourism. So it's a beautiful setting. And at the same time, we do have quite a great thriller built around the ideas of the struggle between science and religion and artificial intelligence. And all the excitement begins when Dan Brown's great hero, Robert Langdon, the Harvard professor of symbology and religious art, Iconology arrives at the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, and this museum is a Frank Gehry design structure. It looks so modernist, so modern. It looks like an alien spacecraft landed on the banks of a river in northern Spain. He's there to attend the unveiling of a discovery that will change the face of science forever. Hundreds of people from around the world have been invited to attend this special presentation in the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. And the evening's host is his friend and former student, Edmund Kirsch, who's a 40-year-old tech magnet who's revolutionizing the world of technology. And at the same time, he's about to unveil a world-shattering revelation. And... During the course of the night, while he's about to unveil his presentation, he is killed, creating an absolute spark in interest from around the world as to what his revelation was going to be and setting off a true Dan Brown adventure to uncover who killed him, what he was going to reveal, and all the different plot themes that connect to that. We also have subplots involving the royal family of Spain, a young prince who's just got engaged to a beautiful young lady who is the curator or the, 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 the she runs the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. She also happens to be right next to Robert Langdon and their flight from Bilbao to Barcelona to try and cover exactly what was about to be presented becomes the main the main thrust of the novel. But Dan Brown is really up to date. We have conspiracy websites reporting on all of this. We have unbelievably beautiful architecture all being analyzed as part of the plot it's a great it's a great novel it's a it's a very quick read but he does ask some major questions that i think most most science writers today are grappling with and that's where's technology going 
and how powerful is artificial intelligence. And these themes, which he's dealing through fiction, actually are underpinning a lot of books that are coming out nowadays, just books on nonfiction books that are trying to grapple with man's role in the world if you're going to have artificial intelligence algorithms that are so powerful that will make a lot of human activities almost redundant. And books like that we've looked at during the course of this year. We looked at uh, a number of books looking at technology and how technology is displacing jobs and destroying jobs. Dan Brown deals with these issues, but through fiction, there's a very entertaining way to introduce yourself to some of these ideas and to grapple with them. And you can do it while you're reading Origin on the beach or in an airplane. They're not that, you know, the book's very easy and accessible. So that's Dan Brown's book, Origin. The next book we're going to do is another giveaway. This book is called Every Third Thought. It's by Robert McCrum, and it's subtitled On Life, Death, and the End Game. It's a serious book. It's a short book. It's only 200 pages. Robert McCrum was the editor-in-chief of the very, very literary publisher, uh, book publisher Faber and Faber, and then he was the literary editor of The Observer, the newspaper in England from 1996 to 2008. Uh, he was at Faber and Faber for nearly 20 years. So he's got very, very, very strong literary uh, credentials to his name. In 1995, Robert McCrum suffered a dramatic and near-fatal stroke, the subject of his acclaimed memoir, My Year Off. Ever since that life-changing event, McCrum has lived in the shadow of death, unavoid, uh, unavoidably aware of his own mortality. And now, 21 years on, he's noticing a change. His friends are joining him there. Death has become his contemporaries every third thought. That's why the book's called Every Third Thought. With the words of McCrum's favorite authors as travel companions, Every Third Thought takes us on a journey through a year and towards a better understanding of death. As he acknowledges his own and his friend's aging, McCrum confronts an existential question. In a world where we have learned to live well at all costs, can we make peace with dying? Searching for answers leads him to others for advice and wisdom. And every third thought is populated by the voices of brain surgeons, psychologists, cancer patients, hospice workers, writers, and poets. Witty, lucid, and evocative, every third thought is an enthralling exploration of what it means to approach the end game and begin to recognize, perhaps reluctantly, that we are not immortal. It is both a guide and a companion. So once again, to win this copy, this book, all you have to do is WhatsApp or SMS us your name, the title of the book that you are reading, and the WhatsApp na la number is 061 Eight nine five one zero one nine. You can SMS us on three four five one nine. It's a serious book, so if you're only looking for light or diverting in reading, rather hold out for another giveaway and let someone who's ready for this serious, the serious read, to win this book. That's Robert McCrum on life, death, and the end game, and the book's called Every Third Thought. The next book we're going to look at is historical fiction. It's called Sugar Money, and it's by Jane Harris. Jane Harris 
This is her third book. This is actually published by Faber and Faber, where Robert McCrum was the, the editor-in-chief. Uh, um, Jane Harris, had her first two historical novels showcased the voices of unsung socially disadvantaged characters, a young Irish immigrant in The Observations and an elderly Victorian spinster in Gillespie and R. Harris is an M. Pathetic and intelligent writer with an instinct for the delicate alchemy that produces page turners. We'll take an ad break and then discuss the book Sugar Money by Jane Harris straight afterwards. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're discussing the book Sugar Money by Jane Harris, published by Faber and Faber. So you know it's going to be quite literary, but at the same time, it is uh, quite an exciting page-turner of a historical novel. Here, her third novel, Jane Harris, is based on a true story. Harris takes us to 1765 and the voice of Lucian, a mulatto slave who is 13 or 14 or thereabouts, and has been brought over to Martinique, that's the French Caribbean island, from his native Grenada. Lucian works tending livestock on a plantation run by French friars. His only family is older brother Emile, who works a long day hike away. Lucien is a vivid character from the first page. When called from the cows to his master's side, he responds to the slack-jawed messenger with the delicious scorn of youth. He had froth at the corner of his mouth from which signs are deemed him to be of no startling intelligence. While exhibiting a soft center in regard to the animals, she had the fluffiest, most velvety ears of, every, of any cow you did see. Now, the summons is important. Father Cleophas wants the brothers to undertake a highly suspect mission. They must return to Grenada, which has been taken over by the British, and smuggle back 42 slaves, former properties of the the friars, but currently claimed by the British in the English invaders when they took over that island two years before. Celeste, who's Emile's former sweetheart, is among the forty two slaves. Cleophas says the endeavour is blessed by the English governor of Grenada, but also warns that the plantation overseers strongly contest their claim. So this is what sets the whole novel off a historical mission for two slaves to go and save 42 other slaves on a neighboring island. And that's Sugar Money by Jane Harris. It becomes a page-turning thriller, historical thriller, and she's able to, she has been able to recreate the world of slavery on the Caribbean plantation islands and show the, the violence that's punctuated the lives of a slave. And by changing the mood from almost an exciting adventure then to showing us the brutality of the slaves' lives, she's able to highlight exactly what it was like to be a slave in the Caribbean during the 1700s. And then the last book that we're going to look at today is Salman Rushdie's latest book, it's called The Golden House. And Salman Rushdie is uh, one of the world's most highly recognized English authors uh, or people writing in English. He's originally from India, and that, inf that, that, that informs all of his fiction. 
Uh, and he is super, super intelligent. So sometimes when you read a Salman Rushdie novel, you actually have to take a break because it's, it's the, it's the literary equivalent of eating too much black forest cake. It's just too rich. His puns, his jokes, his cultural references are so vast and so rich. They just keep coming that you actually have to take a break and just let it assimilate in your mind. That's how I found Salman Rushdie. The book is called The Golden House, but whatever book you read from Salman Rushdie, it really does pay, it, it really, it really, it really pays off the effort that you invest in the book because you see how he layers his stories, how he deals with clash of civil, of cultures, how he brings everything possible, every cultural reference possible onto the page. The book's called The Golden House. When powerful real estate tycoon Nero Golden immigrates to the United States under mysterious circumstances, and it only becomes clear later on where he's immigrated from, but Salman Rushdie being from the Indian subcontinent, you obviously know that his main protagonist, Nero Golden, is an Indian, and he's immigrated to America from from India. Nero and his three adult children assume new identities, taking Roman names and moving into a grand mansion in downtown Manhattan. Arriving shortly after the inauguration of Barack Obama, he and his sons, each extraordinary in his own right, quickly established themselves at the apex of New York society. The story of the powerful Golden family is told from the point of view of their Manhattanite neighbor and confidant, Rene, an aspiring filmmaker who finds the Goldens the perfect subject. Rene chronicles the undoing of the House of Golden, the high life of money, of art and fashion, a sibling quarrel, an unexpected metamorphosis, the arrival of a beautiful woman, betrayal and murder, and far away in their abandoned homeland, some decent intelligence work. Invoking literature, pop culture and the cinema, Rushdie spins the story of the American zeitgeist over the last eight years, hitting every beat. The rise of the birther movement, the Tea Party, Gamergate and identity politics, the backlash against political correctness, the ascendancy of the superhero movie, and of course the insurgence of a ruthlessly ambitious, narcissistic, media-savvy villain wearing makeup and with coloured hair. In the New World Order of Alternative Truths, Salman Rushdie has written the ultimate novel about identity, truth, terror and lies. Uh, some people find it brilliant. Other people might find him almost you know, too rich, as Black Forest Cake is. But it is a brilliant and heartbreaking novel that is not only uncannily prescient, but shows one of the world's great storytellers working at the at the at the at the the heart of his powers. That Salman Rushdie, the book is the Golden House. And just to finish off, all the books that I've reviewed today have been posted on our Facebook page. All you have to do is go to people of uh, go to Facebook and search for people of the book on one one point nine High FM, and then you will find all the books that we've reviewed today, mentioned today, and have been mentioned on the show for the last almost two years on the on the on the on the site. We have more giveaways next week and until then good Shabbos and continue reading.